Who wants to do the the intro this week? Does anybody have anything prepared? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I can I can give it a, a shot since this was my suggestion. All right, go for it. Do it. All right. This week, the gentlemen have read and will be discussing Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. It's a book about book burning, or is it? Listen and find out. No, <laughs> no, don't find out. Just sit with the question. Just, just let it hang there. That's a pregnant <laughs> pause. Just... Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> So this is our second uh, Ray Bradbury, the Velt being our first, just the tip as it were. (laughs) (laughs) This one's a bit longer. (laughs) (laughs) Guys. Uh, Yeah, so this Fahrenheit 451 or 451, it was written in 1953. There was one version in Europe that had the title as 233 Celsius. (laughs) <laughs> what is that like 900 kelvin or something it's, it's just the temperature the paper burns did they ever say what the the fahrenheit 451 meant i think they did in the introduction maybe they had something somewhere i thought about 451 degrees fahrenheit is the temperature at which paper will ignite i definitely remember it from high school did you read it in high school yeah we did okay I did not. Funny story, my my wife read it in high school. She went to a conservative private Christian high school. And so they had all the students go out and purchase the book and then bring it into class where the teacher would take it and then black out all of the uh, questionable words and materials. I could not find out from anybody if any any of the teachers of the time found that ironic or not. I don't see how you couldn't. So Fahrenheit 451, our main character in this story is Guy Montag. He is a fireman and he just loves what he does. And unlike a normal fireman, this fireman is called out to burn things. And I'm not sure where I was going with that, but let's make something. <laughs> it's a summary. It's good. What sort of things, Ryan? <laughs> well, funny you ask, Brian. Uh, these firemen, they are like the... Thought police. And anytime someone calls in a, a complaint about having a book or some sort of a material that is contrary to what the society is comfortable with, these guys are called in to torch it, literally. And sometimes... And the entire the, house that contained the book. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes the people go down with the ship and sometimes they just get arrested and disappear. But... These guys, they are tasked to keep everyone complacent and keep them on task and make sure none of that naughty literature that is contrary to what's popular and makes everybody feel good, make sure that none of that gets out. I thought it was really interesting in the book. They they talk about the, the founder of the fire department was Benjamin Franklin for burning the pro-British propaganda during yeah. the revolution. So Guy Montag, he's this, he's happy to be a fireman. He's roasting and toasting. He loves his job. He goes home and. Well, I think 
saying he loves his job is a little extreme because one of the points is that he's not happy and he because like as we find out later in the book he has stashed away 20 books you know they keep hinting at that he's hiding something up in his vent Mm -hmm. i just i had assumed up until the point where he reveals that it was just one book he's actually been stealing 20 books yeah he he talks about his hands doing things automatically without him really knowing it Mm mm-hmm so we find out he's been stashing books without really thinking about it. He's just, for some reason, he feels like they shouldn't be burned. So he just takes them from a from one of these calls and stashes them. But the turning point was when he meets his neighbor, Clarice, who's kind of a strange young lady. She ha- She's a bit of a free thinker. Like a manic pixie girl? Yeah. Like she... <laughs> She wants to talk to people and talk about feelings, and she's not concerned with the entertainment that's available that everybody else loves. And her family's really weird because they just sit and talk. Who does that? Yeah, exactly. So Montag strikes up a, a kind of friendship with this girl. He They talk back and forth on occasion, and yeah, it gets him thinking about how things are different for her and why she's so weird. And Yeah, he, he's really intrigued by her and it's interesting because in a way it almost feels romantic yeah he's definitely like infatuated but not in a overtly romantic way more of just like an intellectual fascination Mm -hmm. well yeah and then when when we find out that she's been killed um that she's she's died somehow um which i think i think they said that she was hit by a car or yeah. something that's what Millie was saying mm-hmm. um Montag's wife but his the way that he reacts to it felt much more almost paternal in the way that he he felt it it seemed to me that he felt almost as if he had failed her in in not being there or not being able to protect her or something and and maybe I'm reading that into it but that that seems to be how he reacted more than just the kind of romantic you know it wasn't a a lover losing the beloved it was that there was this child who he cared deeply for Mm -hmm. and you know wanted to know more and learn more from and she was taken from him so i think i think their relationship was definitely there's a lot of complex feelings i think it felt romantic in a lot of ways because of his essentially failing marriage with his wife so of course it's going to feel a little bit that way, but but like you said, there was that paternalistic side of things. There was the he was discovering himself. I think it just gets creepy when grown adult men start discovering their identity through teenage girls. There's no way, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to be weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I think you know we're not, we're not really reading into it in their right. being that romantic element because one of their first interactions is that dandelion thing where she's playfully rubbing the dandelion underneath her chin and you know if it rubs off then it means you're in love and oh mr right. montag you're so sad you're not in love and he's you know he's upset by it that yes i am in love i'm i'm happily married mm-hmm. and then he starts to i think have that realization that his life is not the way that he tells himself it is. Yeah, he's finally forced to face that maybe he's not as happy as he thinks just because he has things and he has a job that he does. Maybe it's not what he's actually looking for. So James mentioned uh, Montag's wife. Was it Mildred? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Millie? Mildred. And 
Millie, yeah. So Montag comes home from work one night, and was it right after the flower incident, or was it a different night? It was before that, I think. It was, I think it was when he first met Clarice McClellan, and then he came home from that, because it's, it's right at the beginning of the story, the first time that we're introduced to Millie, mm-hmm. is when he walks in, and he starts disrobing for bed, and then he goes to get in his bed, because they sleep separately, because the 50s, and his foot knocks something that that tinkles and he realize realizes it's the bottle of empty bottle of sleeping pills that had been full earlier that day and Millie has just downed an entire bottle of sleeping pills and so he panics and calls the emergency people and they have a specialized machine for sucking sleeping pills out of people who've taken too many because it's a a big thing that people do and these these guys are just completely who are, who are doing it are completely detached from I thought what they're it was doing. Interesting, like I could identify with the concern about how detached the guys are about it. Mm-hmm. But the way that Ray Bradbury portrays that detachment, like he starts, he starts through through guys through Montag's viewpoint. He's like, I don't even know who these guys are. I've never seen them before. They're complete strangers to me. There's mm-hmm. just so many people in this city now. There's no way to know everybody anymore. Um, and that's such an interesting, like having, you know, having grown up not in the 30s and 40s like Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. I take it for granted. It's like, yeah, of course I don't, like, I don't, I barely know the people on my block, let alone in the city. I would never expect emergency personnel to come to my house and I know who all those people are. That, that'd be insane. Whereas he is pointing out that's a problem with this society is that he doesn't know who these people are. Yeah, they, they show up and what did they say, 50 bucks or something? It was some, like, it was just cut and dried. Like, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. We'll pump her stomach, replace her blood, and 50 bucks, she'll be good as new. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she is. In the morning, she's happily eating her toast and doesn't even remember that she tried to kill herself the night before, which seems to, to bother Montag even more than the fact that she did it is that she's so completely nonplussed by the whole situation that that she had yeah she didn't even realize mm-hmm. yeah purposefully or unpurposefully taken an entire bottle of sleeping pills and then when he says that she did that she's like no that doesn't sound like me i wouldn't do that <laughs> i would never do that i didn't do that yeah and it's that that i think disturbs me even more than the fact that she did do it yeah i couldn't tell was she simple or was she just completely oblivious like she's never had to exercise her brain so that's just how like, no, that doesn't sound like me. So, no, that wasn't me. I think it was part of the, like, I felt like she was a stand-in for the entire society that Montag lives in. Yeah. Um, that it's this nonplussed attitude, this nonchalant, this nothing's ever a big deal, I can't care about anything um, attitude. And so there's some 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 innate baseness that's trying to come out and she's like, like, like her subconscious knows that she's wildly unhappy, so she tries to kill herself, but she can't stop to think about that, that she's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was definitely a strong feeling of denial as she's saying that, no, that doesn't sound like me. I didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. After that incident, the next big thing that I can recall was Montag goes out on a, a call with his Captain Beatty and a couple of the other firemen, and... This time, they're called to this house where the lady doesn't move when they tell her to move. 
Like they go in, start spraying kerosene everywhere. And they're like, we're going to burn this place down. It's time to go. And she's just like, no. And then she kind of flips the script on him because she lights the kitchen match and burns herself up with her books, with her house. Well, that that moment was so dark, but it still brought a smile to my face that when she took the power from them yeah. as, as Beatty's counting down from 10 or counting up to 10, I don't remember. And she just looks at him and holds up a kitchen match and everybody but Beatty and Montag just book it out of there, pun intended. <laughs> and and <laughs> Beatty's just, he's, he's more calm about it because he's more seasoned and Montag is just this highly interested observer he seems like he's he's just watching trying to gather all the data points through the whole thing and he watches in you know kind of a stupor as Beatty backs out and she walks out on the porch of her house that's been doused in kerosene which is the only thing that'll catch these houses on fire now because they've coated them in plastic and she lights the kitchen match and burns herself alive self-immolation with all of her books because she won't let them take her or her books. Mm-hmm. One thing I thought about when I when I read that moment in the story is I wouldn't do that. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, self immolation is not my hobby either. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, just that doesn't seem worth it. But what does that say about the character, and what does that say about me or anybody else who doesn't identify with that? Like, is it is she? Is she dead? Like, is she dying for something? And I, I, and I'm not sure that she is. I think there's. I could make the case that this is just a sign of how broken the society is. She's not necessarily taking a stand for something. Maybe you know we don't know how far along she is in her book reading habits. We don't know if she's part of this other group that she's actually reading and understanding, or if she's just collecting these books and. She's just, a, she's, this society has made her crazy. I don't know if she set out to be a martyr, but it turns out that this is one of the big things that affected Montag and right. started yeah. the turn. It really had a, a William Wallace feel to it, to me. Mm. Right, you yeah. Can, mm. You can take my life, but you can't take my freedom. That my mind will remain my own, and the way that I am able to think, that that will be mine, and you can't have it. Because, mm. you know, from, from I think there's a, a line in there that a, a lot of times when they went and burned people's books, they would then send those people off to an asylum for, you know, what happens in an asylum. You, you try to help people to think correctly. Mm-hmm. And so she was not going to have that. I'm, I'm going to die me or, well, I'm, I'm going to die me or as me. And this was the incident where... Montag picks up the book, right? Yeah. So Montag, he has this, he describes it as his hands just working automatically. So while he's, the firemen are in there prepping to burn this house down, he talks about his hand just picking up a book and with a magician's flourish, dumps it in his pocket and moves on. Did he dump it in his pocket or did he tuck it in his armpit? I pictured pocket, but... I I pictured like the front of his jacket because he talks about I could, I could have sworn there was like a lump that he was talking about, or he felt it up against his chest. Yeah, it's not really important. But yeah, <laughs> it just would ruin the the joke about the strength of the deodorant that he was using that I was working mm. on. But you know. <laughs> was it some sort of a degree and a perspirant joke? Yeah, because they did have that fireman commercial in the nineties. 
oh, right. fireman trust degree because it keeps them cool under when they're in the heat. We asked some of the hottest guys in town to trade their deodorant for new degree deodorant. And this is where we put that audio clip from that commercial, of course. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about our new sponsor. New degree deodorant for a higher degree of protection. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the professionals do it. That's right. <laughs> do you find yourself sweating too much when you're burning books? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not alone, friend. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so then is is it before they go to the house when he has his first interaction with the hound? Yeah, I think so. It was I feel like it was that day when he showed up. He they have this thing called a hound for everybody who hasn't read the book yet. And if you and haven't if you, read the book yet, it's this is spoilerific. So yeah. I apologize. <laughs> and it's it the hound if you if you haven't read this book, but you have read Snow Crash, I'm fairly certain that Neil Stevenson just straight up lifted this thing from Fahrenheit 451. But it's it's an eight-legged, basically mechanical insect, but they insist on calling it the hound. The way that Bradbury describes it is very insect-like, and it has a chemical nose that they can program to all sorts of different scents, including individual an individual person's scent. And so it can track them down across the whole city. Mm-hmm. And so he has these weird encounters with it. He he walks in to the fire station and he goes up to it and it reacts to him. It starts, you know, getting up and he can see the, the needle that it has extending an inch in the air and pulling back, extending and pulling back, which really reminded me of a, a wasp stinger. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll, yeah, you'll see yeah. that sometimes. And it's another one of those insect images. Oh, and it also has multifaceted eyes, it says. Mm. And so... He goes in and he's talking to to Beatty about how the hound got worked up when he was by it again. And Beatty, you know, teases him about it. And then Montag says, this isn't the first time it's threatened me. And when I read that, I was thinking, then why did you go up to it? If this this thing is as deadly as you say it is, and why would you walk up to it? He just wants that (laughs) creepy ass robot dog to love him. That's all. Well, it actually reminded me of... I, I. put a note is he is this his sleeping pill bottle that he's got that kind of emptiness and desperation and and so he's kind of flirting with the you know suicide by hound the way that (laughs) that millie was downing the sleeping pill bottle is is that kind of what's going on there it's just a thought or subconsciously he was testing to see if the hound was on to him for pocketing books yeah perhaps although we haven't found that out about him yet it de- didn't seem like he was doing it thoughtfully. It seemed like he was just curious, like this weird thing just mm-hmm. acts strange. But yeah, Beatty was like, "What do you got a got a guilty conscience, Montag?" Or you know, he says some he says something kind of derisive, like "You're crazy" or whatever. While mm-hmm. they're, they they were playing poker or something, and we'll go yeah. get it. Re- we'll go get it reprogrammed. It'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Montag he has the run in with the dog, and then he has this shake up at the house where the lady lights herself on fire. So Montag's thinking this, there's something going on that's causing these books to affect people because why would someone light themselves on fire over this? And he is subconsciously pocketing these books and stashing them around his house. We find out. Well, actually before all this is when Clarice dies. Okay. So he has the run in with the hound and then there's like this, 
it's like a week long where every every day he's seeing Clarice when he gets home from work as he walks from the the tube subway station thing mm-hmm. back to his house and he's talking with her and then so it, it says uh five six seven days and then Clarice was gone and just all of a sudden she she wasn't there and he's kind of rocked by that and then he starts asking at the fire station some of the questions that she's brought up including you know is it true that firemen used to put out fires instead of starting fires and they kind of tease him about that oh no fire Houses have always been fireproof. What are you talking about? And then they bring out the manual where established 1790 to burn English influenced books in the colonies. First fireman, Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. And then that night is when they have that fire alarm of the lady with her library. Right. So we're starting to see that Montag's, he's starting to question things. And after the lady lights herself up, he goes home with this book and stuffs it under his pillow and he's trying to get some sympathy from his wife and she's just not having it. I think he describes just a a big cacophony of sound, something that just inundates you with this loud noise and bright fireworks and all their, their screens on three walls of the room. I thought she, and she, I think this is a point where you start hearing her call what she's watching on those screens are her friends and family. Right. Yeah. Right. the relatives. Mm-hmm. The relatives. And he starts asking her, like, well, what's happening in these stories? What are they talking about? What's going on? Just watch so, and see. Yeah. And she gets some sort of an interactive thing. Like, they send a script and the the actors on screen say something and she responds. So, it's like, it's interactive in that way. And there's some sort of a thing that they paid extra for to have them speak directly to her. Right, that was pretty wild. Yeah, like of all the technology, because they like the way they describe it was like, oh my god, those are deep fakes. They're doing a deep fake. Yeah, yeah. Ray Bradbury <laughs> predicted deep fakes. But that's not the only thing. Like he also talks about the seashell radio that everybody has in the right. ear constantly, which doesn't sound too dissimilar from a Bluetooth earbud, which is constantly you can talking say- and. <laughs> You can say Apple AirPod. <laughs> We're not afraid to name names and brands on <laughs> gentlemen technologists. This is this is hard hitting, humorous book re- yeah, every, reviews. Every, every, everybody's always worried about how well we're in 1984 now. We're in the the surveillance state and everything, but nobody's talking about the the true threat to our society: Apple AirPods and Fairway mm-hmm. 451. <laughs> yeah, I actually need to charge mine up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This book's written in 1953. This is the the second time that Bradbury's been pretty pretty straight on with technology and technology's influence on society. Yeah. Oh, the I mean, with like you were saying with the targeted ads. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that movie, The Minority Report, where he's getting all the wrong targeted ads because he's uh, swapped out his eyes. Although he got to keep the eyes that his mama gave him, but. I remember watching that scene and thinking, wow, you know, that that is such a crazy vision of the future. And now we all have targeted ads mm-hmm. on everything. But here's here's Bradbury calling that in, like you're saying, Ryan, in the 50s, <laughs> that, that the ads are going to have, 
you know, your name in them and they'll be targeted to you. So that brings up the question, is technology being developed based on our vision? Like, are, is this a self-fulfilling prophecy or was this bound to happen? And he was just pointing at the pointing this at the, the stands and could, could have happened. Yeah. He was calling his home run from the from early on. <laughs> I think that the, it, it kind of really depends on which thing you're talking about. I mean, you talk about things like the the first mobile phone was inspired and admittedly inspired by the Star Trek communicators. That's why they called it the Star Tack. But, <laughs> you know, this, the, the targeted advertising, I think he was looking at, at the way that, w- what would it be like if an advertiser were able to have the things that he can only dream about? Mm-hmm. Well, being able to, to advertise targeted specifically at people by name and then and it, you know aggressively it took, even yeah it it took 70 years but we're there now yeah it, you know this is the future is now boys <laughs> <laughs> i think too it's it's worth really taking a, a a consideration of of the historical context of this book too um as we've done with past books where you know technology was really doing something new with our media consumption especially in the united states uh, at the time when this book was written, the, you know, the radio and the TV were really starting to take off. Mm-hmm. He was, re- this is, I mean, uh, things other than books were really starting to take off and how people were consuming information and news and, inf- and, and content on top of the fact of how the government was running things like the cold war and uh, McCarthyism and all of that. Like, like, he was, you know, really ahead of his time, I think, as far as his criticisms of the government. These were, um, I just, I just, last night, uh, wife and I just watched a YouTube video about uh, protest music. Hmm. And uh, specifically in the early 2000s during the Bush administration, but it was, t- it was also talking about the protest music of well, 60s and 70s and stuff. And the things they were protesting, he's protesting, he is talking about, he's, you know, getting into mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting but his you know his book came out in the his books came out in the 40s and 50s when did fahrenheit 451 come out 1953 yeah but he had been working on it for a while before that presumably he wrote it at least before it was published well, yeah. presumably you would yeah. presume that sometimes yeah. you just start with the ending and you work backward <laughs> <laughs> these podcasts are a hell of a thing to record in reverse i'll tell you that <laughs> i was gonna try to Tried to make sounds like I was talking backwards, but I, it's not going to work. So, <laughs> yeah, that'd be weird. <laughs> okay, so where were we in the story? Montag is dissatisfied with how things are going. He's shaken up with how this lady lit herself on fire. He's not getting any sympathy from his wife. He takes the book that he stole, which turns out to be the King James Bible. Is that correct, Brian mm-hmm. or James? It's it's a Bible. A Bible. Okay. Yeah. I I mean I I would guess that it was probably the King James version. I thought they called it out, but I couldn't recall. So I'm not sure. He stashes this a Bible. Book. <laughs> it could be NRSV. Who knows? But he throws it under his pillow. He starts telling his wife that he doesn't feel good. And then the next morning, he's like, "I'm not going into work. You got to call Beatty and tell him that I'm sick." And she's like, "No, no, you're not going to do that." And then Beatty shows up at the house. Is that correct? Like he. Yeah. Because he's late for work. That's right. He was supposed to shift to like a, a day shift and Beatty shows up and he's like, Montag, you know, everybody starts to question things and, 
you know, we let everybody slip up a little bit, but... And there comes a time in every young firefighter's life when... When your boss needs to come over and exposit all over the place. Let me tell you now the history <laughs> of our entire society. Right. <laughs> and his wife's nervously flitting around and trying to adjust his pillow. And she, like, notices that there's a lump under there. And she's like, what's going on with the pillow? And he's like, oh, just <laughs> get away, woman. We're, we're talking. <laughs> Damn it, woman. <laughs> <laughs> So Beatty's on to him at that point in the story. I got the, uh, I had the feeling and he's just like, I'll see you tonight. Right. Montag. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be there tonight. So was the, I can't at that point, does Montag, is that when he takes the book out and starts reading to his wife? He starts talking to his wife and he's like, okay, I need to show you something. Okay. And they, and he takes her over to the, the door where the the air conditioning vent was well and and Beatty had had mentioned you know every once in a while when a firefighter brings home a book then you know that that happens and they have 24 hours to bring it back mm-hmm. or did he just say that yeah no you say yeah you get we give them 24 hours yeah to bring it back um or we come and we do our thing we burn the house yeah burn the house down and so um Montag takes his wife over and says, well, since you live here and you're my wife, like, he, I, like, it's interesting. He, uh, I like, I get these really ni- 1984 vibes mm-hmm. where like in 1984, they've just kind of resigned. He's, he's just resigned himself to this crappy life. Whereas Montag is just as unhappy, but he hasn't resigned himself to this life. Like he keeps trying with his wife. Yeah. Like he's like, we're married. Like, there's no reason for him to think that she would ever be okay with him pulling 20 books out of a vent. Like, (laughs) there's no indication at all that she can ever think that way. But he's like, look, we're married. You live here, too. You're part of this. Yeah, he obviously cares for his wife. He was distraught when she OD'd. If he didn't care, it would have just been a non-issue. Yeah, I mean, he was... The thing that was so upsetting was that these people who were, you know, using their machine to to pump this stuff out of her had no idea who she was. And that's, that's what he found so upsetting about it was that she was his wife. And these, these people who didn't know her and didn't care about her were the people who her fate depended upon. Mm -hmm. Like uh, in earlier too, when he says, do you remember when we met? How did we meet? And neither of them could remember how they met was interesting. Yeah. She couldn't recall. He couldn't really either, could he? They, they, no, yeah, he couldn't. He couldn't remember either. So they're so un- inundated with nonsense or easy because that was that was part content. of what the what Beatty was talking about, right? That so now everybody's just being inundated with tidbits of information, short form, mm-hmm. inconsequential. Work everybody to death during the day. They come home so tired. They they turn on their get, relatives on their four walls. TVs right. and, and they get just this stream of information so they can't ever process any of it, any of it. And another thing, Bradbury said a few times in the story how fast people drive and Montana oh, yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. Um, Millie, They're all doing these like super dangerous things and Yeah, they drive 100 miles an hour and they see how close they can get to something and maybe nick it a little bit. She t- she talks about how like she wants to go driving and run into rabbits 
Right. Yeah. You drive over rabbits or dogs. It's like, what in the world? They had to like, they had to change the billboards because the billboards were too short. Yeah. People were driving by them too yeah, fast. Yeah. You couldn't read them. Be- so they had to elongate them. They used to be 20 feet long and now they're 200 feet long. So when you're going 100 miles an hour, you read it or something like that. Man, he really missed that prediction for the future. <laughs> <laughs> Montag, he's exploring this Bible with his wife and they're reading it just to see, like, why is this so interesting? And she's clearly not having it. She gets all in a huff. And so Montag, he remembers that he met a professor in the park sometime before. And he has this guy's... Quick contact. question. Was was Bradbury a religious man? Was he... What was his religious... I, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I, I found it interesting that the book he chose was a Bible. Yeah, that the book that caused all of this, or the tipping point, maybe right, is a a book that's really uh, important to a lot of people or offensive to some people. So maybe that's why they chose it. So Montag and his wife, they're they're reading this. She's not having it. Montag wants more information. So he remembers that he talked to this guy in the park who was an English professor, and he took his name and address down after they spoke sometime previously for his investigation journal, I guess is what it would be. So he calls up this guy and says, how many copies of the Bible are there left in the world? And he, the guy said, this is a trap. You can't do this. And he says, no, I'm serious. And Montag visits this guy and takes the Bible with him. And he's like, I want to learn more. I want to know what I'm missing. And I want to learn about this. And what was the professor's name, Brian? Do you recall farad farad faber 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 okay so montag and the professor they start this like mentorship almost where montag wants to know and the professor wants to teach him but he he's old and he's like why should we get involved this is too much nothing's going to change so the professor as montag's leaving says wait a minute i have this thing and he gives him this what looks like one of the seashell radios that everybody has their earbuds. And he says, with this, I can hear what you're hearing and I can talk back to you in your ear. So I'll sit here in my, he describes it, his cowardly nest or something like that. And he'll listen. That's to, just because Fortress of Solitude was already taken. <laughs> that was trademarked. Yeah. So the professor gives Montag this two-way radio and says, I'll be listening in your ear and I want to hear what this Beatty guy has to say. The next main point, Montag goes home and his wife has a bunch of her friends over. And Montag obviously doesn't like these ladies. They're all, I picture real housewife types. Like they're just talking a bunch of nonsense really loud and it's irritating him because. What you're saying is it's a room full of snookies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One lady talks about her kids and how they hate her and that. All kids are terrible these in these modern times. And one lady talked. Oh yeah, there there was an uh, wasn't there an er- earlier conversation too about how kids just terrorize everybody. Ter- yeah, kids just like kill each other. And mm-hmm. this lady said she they kick her, but she can kick them back or something to that effect. And then another lady. This is like her third marriage, and her husband's in the the military, and neither one of them cares. Or you know, if anything happens, it's not no biggie. 
And Montag, yeah, he gets yeah. All, don't don't even think of me. Just move on. Yeah, just <laughs> it's cool. Just whatever. And Montag gets all pissed, and he's like, "You know what? Here, take a listen to this." And he starts doing some poetry slams for these ladies. His wife's appalled, and the ladies are like, "This sucks. What are you doing?" And just the the professors on the radio saying, "What the hell are you doing, man? You're ruining it." And Montag's <laughs> pissed. The ladies are pissed. They storm out after he kind of blows up. Well, the one lady was seemed to be deeply affected, and she started crying. And then the other lady got all upset and said, "See, I knew, I knew this would come of it. I've always said suicides and poetry they go together like hand in glove." Yeah, and and so it's you know this this woman has had this poem deeply affect her, and she's she's weeping because of of the feelings that it's stirring in her but because they're not that happiness that everyone has to strive for all the time and that they're told the whole point of everything is to be happy then they feel like they have to shut it down and they they storm out because you know how dare you make us feel anything but happy so the next big thing montag goes to work he's got his radio earpiece in he's got the professor listening And Beatty goes on this just crazy diatribe of, you know, I had a had a dream about you and you were saying this and I was countering with this. And he was going into all this deep literature knowledge that he had, which is way further than any fireman should. And it was this exposition, like James was saying earlier, that this guy, he knows an awful lot about literature. He knows an awful lot about what's going on. And yet he is the head fireman. And so Beatty's, he's really just going and just giving Montag the third degree, the professor's in his ear like, oh, this is a trap. Don't, don't say anything. We'll get him back. Don't worry. And then lo and behold, the alarm rings and the, the Beatty, the captain, he makes a big thing like, oh, what is this? And takes the the facts or whatever. It sounds like a teletype type thing. Folds it up and he says, all right, boys, let me whip you at this hand of cards and then let's go. So it makes a big deal about this. And then they jump in the salamander and they start driving. And the whole time, this guy is just still giving Montag the business. Just like, see, this is dumb. This is why you don't want to get involved with this. And guess where they pull up? It's Montag's house. Dun, dun, dun. I did not see that coming. (laughs) So Montag, he's like, oh, no, this is my house. And he's kind of talking to the professor, kind of to himself. And then Beatty thinks he's talking to him, too. And he sees Mildred running out and getting into a cab. and Where she's saying, I think she called him family, but the poor family, poor, poor family or poor, poor relatives or. Yeah, it, it seemed like she was upset that they were about to burn her house. With her, she was upset about her TVs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which sounded kind of expensive. Like, yeah. it was, you know, each screen was a third of his his wage. And it sounded like he was not making like a ton of money, but he wasn't making like a little. Like, it wasn't like a crap job. It was a it was a well funded job, and like each screen, and they had three screens. She wanted that fourth wall, that fourth screen. Right. Yeah. So I get it. I identify with her. That sucks. Yeah. Nobody wants your TV burned. (laughs) (laughs) Am I the bad guy in this story? I think I'm the bad guy in this story. One thing I forgot before Montag went to work that night and after his wife's friends ran off, he starts unloading 
pulling out all the books out of all the nooks and crannies that he's been stashing all these and they're stacking up and up and up. And then his wife's like freaking out like, oh no, something's going to happen. You're going to, this is going to be the end of us. So Montag hides some of these books and before he goes off to work. Now that Montag's home, he sees that all of his books are piled up right there in front of God and everyone. So Beatty's just standing there giving him the business saying, I want you to do this yourself. I want you to do this old school and pull every page up. He's a flamethrower. Yeah. So Montag's forced to burn his own house. And in some ways it sounds like it was a little bit cathartic. Like he's roasting his, uh, his twin beds where they used to sleep and not care about each other. And yeah, I thought that that, that line where he roasts them, I, I, Marked it. He says, uh, they went up in a great simmering whisper with more heat and passion and light than he would have supposed them to contain. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was a really interesting way to say how, how dead their relationship was that when, you know, in his mind, as he's about to burn them, he just doesn't even picture them as really containing anything that, that could be construed as, as passion that they'll just kind of burn up quick and easy with you know nothing much to see but then when they they light up in a blaze it's like wow they're <laughs> never would have thought that they're capable of that fire there she said yeah. it didn't work like that <laughs> <laughs> you found mildred's box of toys under the bed or something <laughs> oh dear <laughs> oh, no that's the fan fiction <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Montag's burning down his own house. Beatty's still giving him the business. Just he's at a breaking point. After his house is burning, he's out in front of out in front. And Beatty, what, punches him? He's yelling at him and he hits him. And then he says, finish up. And then we're going, you're under arrest. Yeah. Then what was the what was the next big thing? Uh, Montag asked, was it my wife who turned in the alarm? And Beatty nodded said, yeah, but your friends turned in an alarm earlier that I let ride. One way or the other, you'd have got it. It was pretty silly quoting poetry around free and easy like that. And then he starts insulting Montag, and then Montag, yeah, he hits hits Montag, and, and the little earpiece falls out. Mm, that's right. Yep, and he, he snatches it up, and he says that they're going to trace it. And then Montag says he twitched the safety catch at the flamethrower, and Beatty glanced at his fingers, and his eyes widened it just the faintest bit. Like he expected so, it. Yep. He, he was and, like, all right, all right, let's see if you got it. Let's see if you got the stones, Montag, let's do this. Then he starts taunting him. Yeah, and the way Montag said it, it sounded like he was describing his hands working autonomously. Mm-hmm. Like, just like they did when they were stealing the books. It wasn't conscious, it was just... I was reading something that was saying that BD was wanted this to happen, that this was yeah. Yeah. killing yeah, so himself. W- when Montag is floating down the river later, he's reflecting on this and what he's done in that night. And he realizes, he says, you know, no, no sane person with a flamethrower pointed at them would then taunt their enemy to the point to aggravate them and make them angry to the point where they would burn them. BD wanted to die. Mm-hmm. And given his deep background in literature that from this exposition that happened just previously, 
He's talking about all these languages he spoke and how he read all these books and he can quote them all to you, Montag, and you don't know anything. It seems like he's pretty pained. It seems like the lady doth protest too much. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's he's the head fireman. He's running this team and it seems like he doesn't like what he's doing, but he's doing it because it's a job and maybe he's just sick of it and he wants out. So this is the out. Montag unconsciously douses Beatty and lights him up. Beatty's burning right there in front of the house. The neighbors are looking on. They're starting to wake up because the spectacle of the house burning has been over at that point. And people are like, oh, good. The show's over. Let's go back to bed. But now that there's yelling and fighting and there's a guy burning to death, people are starting to notice. So Montag burns Beatty alive. He tells the other guys to turn around and then he clunks their heads together like Mo from the Three Stooges and they go out cold. <laughs> and he picks up the, uh, the earpiece, which somehow is still working. And he's talking to the professor and he's like, you got to got to get out of there, Montag. You know, you've really done it now. So that's when Montag's now a fugitive. He goes and grabs what books he has left and he takes off for the professor's house. As he's running, it sounds the way I picture it. He's in this neighborhood and across this crazy street where people drive 100 miles an hour is the, the wooded area. So Montag's got his books and he starts going across the road and he gets nailed with this oh no actually i forgot something the spider dog right mm-hmm. the, the hound they send the hound after him the hound showed up tracked montag down and stung him a little bit enough to anesthetize part of his leg yeah and before he the hound gets roasted with the flamethrower so montag's partially anesthetized he starts trying to escape into the forest and then he gets clipped by a car that's going fast so he basically has a broken leg that's partially anesthetized so not a very good footing to escape on i feel like that's better than having a broken leg that isn't anesthetized yeah it's kind of a kind of a kindness there (laughs) it's basically just a neutral there she's ryan you have to be such a such a glass half empty type of person yeah (laughs) montag he makes his way back to the professor's house He's like, I gotta, I gotta run. You know, the another hound's gonna be after me, and they're gonna have the, the helicopters chasing me down. So the professor tells him, "You gotta run. Here's some some old clothes and some stuff. You gotta gotta escape to the river, right?" And Montag tells him, "Turn on your sprinklers. Do all this stuff." Yeah, and then he he coats coats the suitcase in whiskey to kill the smell, and and also because it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> He didn't say which kind of whiskey, but, you know, it could have been the top shelf stuff. I would hope it's not. It's a professor. It wasn't the cheap stuff. Yeah. So he has his crystal vase of whiskey that he's toting with this uh, with this box of the professor's old clothes. And he kind of thinks that that's it for the professor. But he says, hey, when I'm out of here, turn on your sprinklers. Let's try to remove any trace that I was here. Then he takes off. So Montag's fleeing through the woods. He's going to the river. He can see through the windows of these houses that there's a police chase. And now that's the hot news that everybody's woke up and watching this action because, you know, that's the fun thing to do. And Montag sees at some point that the hound makes it toward the professor's house, but doesn't actually catch him. Is that correct? Yeah. So it goes to the professor's house, but then it it ends up 
um, picking up his trail and leaving the professor's house alone and continuing to follow Montag. Okay. So the hound basically chases him to the river. And this is where Montag seems to shed his old life. This is probably some symbolism that I'm reading into this, but Montag throws his old clothes off, throws him down the river. That's his old life going away. And then he's putting on the professor's clothes, which smell like the professor. He's dousing himself in whiskey to also smell like the professor, I assume. (laughs) And also just a little toot for himself. So he feels a little better about this. And then, so he's, figuratively becoming the professor taking on his clothes taking on his scent and taking on his aspect and then he jumps in the water and makes his escape and the hound loses his scent at that point and montag is just he's floating he's reflecting on all this crazy stuff that's just happened and what else did we see no seriously what else did we see (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so that that's when he's thinking about uh his interaction with with Beatty and that realizing that Beatty kind of did a suicide by fireman he mm-hmm. he I think reading the story again this time I was really struck by how tortured Beatty seems to be that he he knows all the right things to say but but he also seems to be tortured by knowing more and struggling with that i think he really does buy the party line that the most important thing is to be happy and all these things don't agree and when you have that cognitive dissidence it it's not a happy feeling and therefore we need to to quash it and censor all these things censor any art and music and movies and books and anything that that makes you think and question and dissent and then he 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 buys that line but he has that desire within himself to to know more which is why he's so he kind of tries to pass it off as well I'm I'm the chief fireman so I I have to know some of this stuff mm-hmm. but you know he he's quoting all sorts of stuff that's far beyond what he has to know like when the the woman burned herself and she quoted Latimer uh when Latimer and, and Ridley were burned at the stake for heresy, that what's the line? We'll light a candle this night that by God's grace will never be put out. Or light mm-hmm. a candle in England or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the exact quote, but he he was widely read enough that he heard the, the quote, immediately recognized it and knew the rest of it and who said it and why and was able to explain it to Montag later. You know, that's that's not something that's that's a bit beyond just the bare necessity that he tried to pass it off as. And I think he has that kind of torture. He, he believes it, but he, he struggles with that's not what he desires and that unhappiness that I should be happy, but I'm not. And I think that's why he, you know, wanted to, to check out. And I think that's kind of what Montag was realizing as he's floating down the river there. Now, Beatty kind of strikes me. We have the professor who's he's in. English professor, he loves books, he loves literature, and he loves the every good thing that books and knowledge can do. On the other side of the coin, we have Beatty, who also obviously knows what knowledge can do, also collects knowledge, but through whatever path his life's taken, he's decided it's easier to follow the dark side, as it were, to destroy things 
rather than fight it. So he's taken kind of the easy way out. Maybe that's part of his guilt that he's trying to assuage by letting Montag light him up. Just interesting that they're really similar personalities, but they're opposite, you know? Mm -hmm. Another thing we didn't really cover is during the entire book, everything's punctuated by fighter jets flying overhead all the time. Right. Talking about this yep. huge war and millions of people deployed and all this crazy stuff. And the war will only take two weeks or whatever. So people seem to be completely immune to why whatever's going on. It doesn't even seem to bother them. Montag kind of skims over it all. So while Montag's floating and having this self-realization, eventually he he comes ashore and he finds these railroad tracks and he starts heading out of town. The professor told him to head to St. Louis. The professor was going to St. Louis. He was leaving on the 5 a.m. bus. Okay. And then so. So he, he told him to just, I think, follow the tracks and look for the hobo camps, which really is great advice for any time that you're just out and traveling is search down the, the hobo camps. So Montag's plugging along the tracks and he comes along ye olde camp of English professor hobos. I just love that picture of a hobo camp filled with nothing but Harvard degrees. <laughs> yeah, basically, it's like a an oil drum that's on fire. There's a bunch of guys in tweed jackets standing around with their elbow patches, warming themselves with their fingerless gloves. <laughs> and they introduce him. They're like, hello, Montag. Come on in. Like, they knew who he was. Yeah. They start talking about, well, this guy's from NYU and this guy's from Stanford or whatever universities. It was all prestigious people that were are very learned, but completely shunned by this new society. Montag joins them and he's drying off, kind of seeing what's going on with all these super learned people. And they turn on this TV, which they just happen to have in their hobo camp. and Which is how they knew his name. They'd been watching it. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> so they they turn on the, the OJ they're, coverage. They're just that learned that they <laughs> their brains just kind of pulse and they're like, "How did you, oh, how did you know my name? <laughs> we read a book. <laughs> I'm well read enough that I can tell that you're a guy Montag. <laughs> That's just what you look like." <laughs> so they turn on this TV and they're watching the news coverage and they see the the helicopters running around and they see the. The spider dog running down an alleyway. And then one of them says, oh, they're about ready to find him. And he's like, wait a minute, I'm right here. And they're like, no, there has to be a period on every sentence type thing. And so some poor stumble bum that's out taking a midnight walk is going to take the fall for this. And sure enough, the newscast like robotically says the threat has been neutralized and everything's over. We would start learning more about the, the uh, learned hobos. And their plan to restore knowledge. Well, before we go there, what really struck me about the whole thing with the newscast pretending was that they they actually found some guy who was just out for a midnight stroll. Mm -hmm. And because he was the odd duck who, you know, broke the mold and was outside, he was the perfect scapegoat to just murder and let him be sacrificed. And they, they let the hound get him. Yeah, rather than... And then, yeah, then then the professors are all saying, yeah, look, you know, they, they left his face just out of focus enough that even your friends wouldn't be able to tell that it wasn't you. Mm -hmm. And 
they need to keep the peace and keep the status quo to the point that they're they're just going to sacrifice any random dude uh, who happened to be out walking out for a stroll. That part just seemed so eerie to me. So now, do you think like the larger world? This is where I was talking earlier too about about the nineteen eighty comparing this to nineteen eighty four. The 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 universe that this exists in, this government that exists, um, nineteen eighty four, like the world that they lived in was definitely constructed by the government, by an evil entity. Right. Whereas the this world didn't feel that way. Like I like I felt like the author was really trying to pull it more towards look, this was not constructed by any this wasn't like some evil group that there's the bad guys that uh, that that you need to resist against this was constructed by us it's almost like a uh right it's we we ask this this. is yeah you know democracy can do wonderful things but it can also be twisted and it's it's sort of a twisting of democracy yeah not necessarily twisted by somebody right twisted by our own desires our we can pass laws and and we can elect people to represent us but we can also if we decide that that everything is unacceptable then we can find ourselves in a place where nothing is acceptable and it's easier for us to say this is too hard somebody else fix it for me and turn the other way and allow ourselves to end up like that yeah what i found really intriguing at this point in, in the story was finally kind of lifting the gaze up from just the the town the city that that montag is in to the nation and then beyond and going oh not every nation is necessarily doing this the united states is has completely cut themselves off and so this war is presumably with with other countries that are not they're actually able to to think and not not self-censor and and cripple themselves in this mm-hmm. way, which seemed, it, it was just kind of strange, especially to then see these jet planes that come in and bomb the city. It's like, man, way to kick a guy when he's down. But, but at the same, at the same time, what do you, <laughs> what else? The United States was gearing up for war. I mean, this is the United States within the story, but they're gearing up for war with these other nations. Right. And so, you know, military power doesn't doesn't require that you have a, a thinking population and a a conscious and ethical population behind it. Yeah. In this book, we get the idea that these wars are like, yeah, they're super easy, you know, in and out in a week, 10 million guys, you know, no problem. It's always somebody else's husband that dies, as somebody says at one point in the book. And then after Montag meets up with these guys, like Brian said, the bombers fly over and just destroy the city that he just Fortunately, from. it was after 5 a.m., so Professor Faber was on his way to St. Louis. Yeah, that was one thing that I was like, uh-oh. But yeah, that, that's a good point. This merry band of hobos, and I say hobos in the kindest sense of the word. I know homeless well, is not a... That's, that's the word that Bradbury <laughs> used, so we're just honoring his word choice. <laughs> we can't, we're, we're, there's a lot of books we're never going to be able to read for this podcast because of the word choices that were used <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's that political correctness again jeez 
<laughs> so this this band of uh, learned men they have this plan to restore knowledge. It was yeah some method that one of the professors had worked up like a mental exercise to give you photographic memory so that you could recover everything that you'd ever read. Yeah, so each one of these guys was tasked with using this method. You can read something once and it's captured perfectly in your mind and we can recall it later. Yeah, the idea was that when this is all blown over and and society has moved past this as as just a another dark age that they can all sit down with the printers and recreate the books that were destroyed and recover the lost knowledge and we can move on and eventually we'll do it again and then again but over over time as each cycle happens more people will remember that this is not something we should do until eventually we as a species grow past that self-destructive tendency what was montag's particular piece i feel like it was is the book of ecclesiastes parts of the book of ecclesiastes do you think there was a specific reason that bradbury chose those sections so revelation is uh it's john's vision and so at the the end the part of the revelation that he's talking about is is a vision of the kingdom of heaven so it's it's at the end of the revelation when john sees the new jerusalem come down and there is the tree of life with the 12 manner of fruits and it's actually a a picture of a restored eden and so you have the the restoration of how the world was supposed to be but it's it's perfected it's better than so you have that that hope that it's going to get better and then ecclesiastes is widely considered to be one of the greatest works ever written it's attributed to Solomon, but there's really, it's an anonymous author. It's basically the author is presenting the teachings of this person called the preacher or the convocator, the, the one who calls people together. The Hebrew word is actually kohelet, and it's hard to translate because we don't have a, quite an equivalent term, but it's someone who, who calls people together and leads that group. So it's almost like an MC. We're just three MCs and one DJ, and we be getting down with no <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so, but the, this preacher is very jaded, and so he's talking about, I, I tried to find happiness in this, I tried to find happiness in that, I tried to find satisfaction and completeness in, in pursuing this thing, and that all proved to be a vanity, and you know, even vanity is, it's like a mist, it's its smoke, it's ether, it's, it seems to be real until you try to put your hands on it and then it disappears and there's nothing there. So it's this very poetic but cynical look at the world and that kind of matches this. Sorry. What? Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Siri. <laughs> yeah. Siri um, and vanity all of a sudden just like. Are you talking yeah. to the professor right um, now, Brian? So, uh, so it's, it's actually really appropriate to the the story because there's this pursuit of happiness that it's all about finding happiness. That's, that's where they, you know, when Montag read the poetry, they got so upset with him because, you know, why can't people just be happy? You just got to let us be happy. And in Ecclesiastes, it's, it's talking about, I, I tried to find that, but it's, it's all vanity. There's nothing really there. And so you have this this kind of moving on from that, that 
and then at the end of the book, the author of Ecclesiastes said, you know, well, keep keep all that in mind. It's interesting what he's saying, but, you know, just that's something to think about. So what's interesting in the book of Ecclesiastes is that it's not actually even saying the dude's totally right in what he's saying here. It's it's just this is this is something. Yeah, it's it's kind of like looking at, you know, the book. If you take the book of Proverbs as promises, the, if you do this, then this will happen. And that doesn't always happen. And so Ecclesiastes is kind of responding to that. Well, if, well you know, w- what does everything mean then? Sometimes bad things just happen. Yeah, I think that particular choice does make a lot of sense then. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, so I thought that was really, it was, it was an interesting choice. I think that he, he put a lot of effort into choosing a lot of the details in this, and it really showed. I'm curious how the thought process would have been for how this book was created. Like, did he read a news article or hear something or just like something triggering mm-hmm. him and like, that's weird. Or did he have a dream about firemen who actually light fires? Or I was reading a little bit behind the scenes stuff that he had. There, there was like there was a handful of things that had come up that caused um, that inspired him. There was, you know, of course, there was the bombing of Hiroshima, um, and just the this was this was all kind of developed right around the time of the Cold War and and all of that. Um, on top of the fact there was, you know, McCarthyism and. The, Every time you say McCarthyism, I want to say that I have, am not now, nor have I ever been a member of the Communist Party. <laughs> and then I thought I had seen something like he had had a really bad experience with a with a traffic stop with a policeman. Huh. Okay. Here's from the Wikipedia. It says in late 1949, Bradbury was stopped and questioned by a police officer while taking while walking oh. late one night. It was in traffic. <laughs> Huh. <laughs> so he was the guy mm-hmm. that got bit by the spider dog. <laughs> and then he felt like the guy the um policeman was being a little aggressive. He ended up writing a short story called The Pedestrian. Hmm. Uh in The Pedestrian, Leonard Mead is harassed and detained by the city's remotely operated police cruiser huh. for taking nighttime walks. Wow. And ever and ever and this I think goes back to uh I just lost the main character's name. Montag. Uh, uh, Mo- Montag. And um, uh, Clarice mm-hmm. and their walks that that the pedestrian was was a short story about this guy who wants to go out and take walks and everyone else wants to stay in. He's being harassed by the police for going outside. He's the weirdo. That, that, the the weird that he's the weirdo and culture and society has set themselves up to punish those who are doing something different, like going out for a walk. Hmm. Yeah. I think the the book burning, that was something that was, I bet it's been done a lot of times, but in particular, the Nazi party would, yeah, they yeah, burned I think a it lot of books. Fresh coming right off of, you know, if this is written in 53, you know, it's. Yeah, that was 10 years previous. That That's crazy. But that made me also think what's interesting is, you know, he, he refers to all of the cars in the book as Beatles, which. Yeah. I was wondering mm. about that. I yeah, was like, well, I remember Beetle? reading this in middle school thinking, oh, Volkswagen Beetle, because, you know, it's a German car. And But then he talks about him going 100 miles an hour, and the only time I've ever seen that happen <laughs> yeah. is if it drops out of a plane. Or, or Herbie fully loaded. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but there's there's a lot of insect imagery all through the book. and Yeah, 
salamander. The salamander. The, well, yeah, this, the, a salamander is a lizard, but yeah, there's yeah. the. There's the the right, yeah. um, hound, which is described in insect terms, even with the multifaceted eyes. Then the the little earpiece uh, mm-hmm. is described almost like an in insect terms, and it made me actually think. I'm wondering if he's putting all that insect imagery in there to kind of lay out the that humanity in in this alternate United States of America has has become. A bunch of drones hmm. there's that i don't know is i think it it just kind of is maybe a, a subtle way of working in that image in that uh feel to the the story so i had a i had a thought earlier about a lot of the themes in this in this story and i cannot remember what that thought was so i'm going to start talking and i'm going to hope that my brain the catches Michael up Scott method Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I just start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. There's, don't even know. Don't even know. But um, I thought about the the book burnings. So when when my daughter was in public school, I decided I was going to get super involved and I went to a school board meeting. Big mistake. Oh my gosh! And I went on just either the best or the worst night, depending on what where you how you want to spend this. But I guess one of the school board members had posted something on Facebook on his personal page about confederate monuments and how they should be torn down now you know i'm in idaho there's no confederate monuments here he was just expressing his opinion about the country as a whole mm-hmm. there's a gentleman who didn't have a child in the school district who was super upset about it super upset about it and he wanted to speak at the school board meeting and the school board said no <laughs> no it doesn't have anything to do with the school so he decided to organize a mock book burning out in front of this the school board meeting because he was being censored from commenting in official way about one of the school board members facebook posts so he had a wood pile and he had all of these books in his wood pile and they were all they weren't like they were all like the types of books that he and the people that were with him were reading so they were all None of the authors I recognized. <laughs> Bunch of conspiracy theory stuff. I'm like, wow, this is weird. <laughs> That's awful heavy on the Danielle Steele there, fella. <laughs> they uh, they shut down the meeting at one point and he just yelled at everybody that they were all communists. I was just, I oh. was, I was crazy. That sounds fantastic. I know. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I remember I leaned over to, uh, a guy who was there, I think he was like the one of the um, the guy who headed up like all of the lawn care in the entire district. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, so is this how it always is? And he's like, no, this is <laughs> this is really different. Wow. <laughs> like, and this just happens to be the night that I picked. <laughs> but that idea of of censorship, normally that idea it's crazier. Of, <laughs> normally it's crazier. Normally, this is Idaho. Normally, there's guns. <laughs> <laughs> but um I identify in the in this story lots of things that I can criticize someone like this guy that he's you know he but that he's also utilizing the imagery from this story as well of being censored like it, it's it's this universal no matter where what your viewpoint is whatever your ideology is the tools being utilized in this story to criticize 
those who do not match your ideology can be used by any ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I, I don't know if I stated no, that I think, right. It sounded very yeah, smart. I, I think, <laughs> I think that's really good because it's what he's, he's almost laying out is that it's, it's not, it's, it's almost like a weapon, not a weapon of war, but that this censorship, it's a weapon that can be used by anybody. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. Beatty's talking about how it's, you know, the, the white people didn't like, this so they had that censored and this minority didn't like that so they had that censored and pretty soon everything's censored and it's this this uh it's a weapon that can be used and maybe maybe the destruction that it can wield is not worth it and so we don't use it and i think that's kind of his his point is that there's this is something that is too powerful to to mess with and so maybe we don't do it so I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I, I don't like the, uh, I don't think the story is saying there's some entity that is censoring other people. Like the firefighters are censoring books, mm-hmm. but at, not at the behest of, like we were talking about, at the behest of some sort of other organization. Right. It's at the behest of society right, it's, itself. It's society, it's people who it's are, people. We're, we're doing it. Um, yeah, we're doing it I think there is, right. there is, there is a place to, for censorship's not the right word for there's a place for denying certain ideas a platform Mm -hmm. and what i think this book is and the book doesn't address that right i I think what the book is addressing is i don't know what the right word is not censoring yourself but censoring the ideas around you that that what we would maybe say now of of putting yourself in a bubble of ignoring ideas that make you uncomfortable i think is is maybe the most you know the book is warning against that. It's warning against avoiding ideas that make you uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I made my notes because I, th- I think you're right. And that I think this book is not so much about the censorship as, right. as, as it is. As, as is often simplified right. by. A lot of people say that this is yeah, about this, censorship. Oh, and I don't think it's necessarily Fahrenheit about that. 451. Oh, that's the book about book burning. And, yeah. and I think it's actually, you know, what I wrote down when I was reading is it's about the removal of dissent that what you see through the whole thing is these people are there. They may not necessarily dissent, but they have the ability to dissent and they often do. So that's why you see like when the lady was burned, she quotes the two men burned as heretics, uh, Ridley and uh, Latimer, that they're, they're dissenting from the majority view of, of the religion and they're being burned for it and so they they don't have the freedom to dissent they don't have the ability to dissent even if it's just within their own minds and that's i think what this this book is about it's you know there's it's not so much about the censorship as that there's no there's no more dissent left in this world there's no more ability to say this this way that we have everything set up is it doesn't work another uh thought I had given the 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 current historical context of what's going on in our society um, with the Black Lives Matters movements, the flippant attitude towards everything that the society has in Fahrenheit 451, that Clarice dies and a Mildred doesn't care. The war is going on. It's just another form of entertainment for everybody. That really struck me as as commentary now as as we see things that are going on, things that have always gone on for the past 50 years, 
I think there's a there's a challenge in this story to say, no, you need to be looking out at what's going on in the world and caring. That you can't take a neutral position where normally I hear that kind of adage where you, you know you know being neutral just takes the side of the oppressor. This is saying you can't be neutral because society just falls apart if we all just remain neutral. If we all if we all try to stay comfortable, like that's the Velt, I think, was kind of that way too. Is it was all it was a criticism of just being comfortable. So bringing this all home, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Another interesting piece of work by Ray Bradbury. Yeah, I I think it's it's one of those books. I mean, it's it's one of those books where it's I'm glad they teach it in schools and mm-hmm. it's a shame they yeah. teach it in schools. <laughs> yeah. I think it's 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 worth reading critically. It's worth really getting into and understanding what's being said there instead of just reading it and saying, oh, yeah, 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 the book's about book burning. It's about censorship. It's like, uh, that's not what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what the story is, but that's not yeah. what the book is. Were there any interesting parts that, that struck you guys? Just fun little takeaways? I really, I need to look up an image of these hounds because I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on there. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think it's just like a, it's an eight legged, I don't, I think he called them hounds because the firemen have always had the fire dogs, you know, the, the Dalmatians. Oh, so that's, went a, with, that's a good call. Oh, hey. So he went with that image, but they're described much more like a, a wasp. I always pictured it as a, uh, as an organic type of thing that it wasn't fully mechanical. I, I mean, I, I have no reason for really thinking that, but I, that's just how I pictured it. I pictured it as like a cybernetic. Yeah. Genetically created. If you read thing Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, I swear he he lifted that these things straight out of there and made them even like creepier because they they move in like bullet time and they they leak radiation and all sorts of good stuff. Well, like look, that. somebody made a Lego version of the Hound. That's yeah. Nice. There's lots of pictures on <laughs> Deviant Art that are pretty freaky. There's a moment right towards the end of the book where as Montag is watching the bombs fall and he is imagining Millie's last moments. And here I'll I'll read it. He says, Montag falling flat, going down, saw or felt or imagined he saw or felt the walls go dark in Millie's face because he imagined her in her hotel room with her family, with her, you know, the the relatives on the screens. Mm -hmm. Um, Felt the walls go dark in Millie's face, heard her screaming because in the millionth part of time left, she saw her own face reflected there in a mirror instead of a crystal ball, and it was such a wildly empty face, all by itself in the room, touching nothing, starved and eating of itself, that at last she recognized it as her own. And I noted that because it sounds so much like the premise for the show Black Mirror, <laughs> when the light goes out on a screen and you're left staring at your own reflection, and you know, that that this these relationships <laughs> oh that, i get it now i didn't get that before oh the black mirror thing yeah yeah the, I, one of the creators I'm the actually, dumb one of this group i feel like <laughs> <laughs> i feel like every episode i'm like i didn't get that at all i get it now well one of the creators of the show went on record as saying that's where they got the yeah, idea it was it makes sense it's it's good it's good but this this whole life that millie had built up all of her relationships with these relatives 
And I thought that calling them relatives was just a, a stroke of genius on Bradbury's part for that. It In a moment, it all is revealed to her, and it's her last moment where it's all revealed to be just a farce because they, they're shut off and she's left alone. Black Mirror, baby. Black Mirror, baby. <laughs> I, now I'm I all think, depressed. I think if <laughs> <I'm all depressed. laughs> I think if Bradbury were alive today, that he'd be writing for Black Mirror. He'd be writing episodes for him. <laughs> I realized I was just looking. Um, he died in 2010. Really? Wow. So yeah. we got to see most of this stuff come to fruition. Wow. I thought he died in like the 80s. That's a Man- Mandela effect right there. All right, fellas. Do we want to put this on the Nicolas Cage rating system? Yeah. I boy, this feels like a. This is a national treasure plus oh, for me. Oh, man. Mm. It's been, you, you either love or you hate it. That's that, uh, was it City of Angels? <laughs> no, I, I, I would say this is a, a, solid, a solid one, so maybe a Con Air. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah, Con Air, maybe, a, maybe the yeah, Rock, if the we're rock. talking Peak, yeah, peak yeah, Cage. Okay. I, I can get behind that. Okay, I'll change my answer. I'll I mean, call like, that the National rock. Treasure, I feel like, should just be reserved for truly magical things, you know. Which which national treasure? Just the first one. Just the first okay. one. Just the first. I've one. merged them in my mind, and just like National Treasure Two is just more, which is all I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you're playing a song at ten, and you just need that little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Eleven. <laughs> Eleven. Just take it up one more notch. <laughs> what about you, James? What do you rate this? Yeah, I was gonna say The Rock. Right. Um, just you know. Well, then I w- I will also change it, and we'll go with The Rock. <laughs> not not. Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but Nicholas Cage Rock in it gets the very movie confusing. The Rock. I don't know Nicholas who to blame Cage. for that mix-up, but they really got to get their branding. Straight. I blame Ray Bradbury. If we really don't like something, we'll call it the eight millimeter Nicholas Cage. <laughs> 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 like if it's terribly depressing and makes you feel sick for after experiencing it, it's. Maybe, I can't yeah. decide whether that's better or worse than uh, than Magician's Apprentice, Nicholas Cage. Boy, he has a he has a. Long and sordid career. That's why he's such a Let's perfect see, rating somewhere, system. Somewhere in there, we got to work in the face-off Nicolas Cage. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. Yeah. The Rumblefish Nicolas Cage. <laughs> the Fast Times at Ridgemont High Was Nicolas he in Fast Cage. Times at Ridgemont High? Was he? Yeah, he was a bit character. <laughs> oh, dear. Amos and Andrew Nicolas Cage. Ooh, what was honeymoon in Vegas? Oh. What was the what was the movie he was in where he was a arms dealer? Was that? Oh, was that? It wasn't Snake Eyes, was it? Snake Eyes was a. It wasn't. He was a gambler, it wasn't maybe. The dog was it? Oh, Ghost Rider Nicolas Cage. Oh, Ghost yeah. Rider, we man. missed the boat. I, I'm embarrassed. I, I'm leaving. That's it. <laughs> I need to confess something. I really liked Ghost Rider in junior high, early high school. I can't even, like, I didn't read any of the stories, couldn't tell you anything about them, but Mm -hmm. flaming skeleton on a motorcycle, that's all I needed.